I remember one time almost kind of getting caught. I was in my apartment on on Park Ave and Thirty Fifth, uh, doing a batch. Where of, all the good moonshiners. Are no, located. it's it's a it's a it's basically yeah, an it's incubator. Hot, oh yeah, yeah. bed for moonshiners. And I was, you know, when you distill, you need cooling water running through your running through the system, and uh, you end up using a lot of water. Um, well, I flooded the basement the the apartment below me uh, like i don't i don't know what happened necessarily but but the water pipes leaked and so i get a call from my doorman he's like hey is your dishwasher leaking i was like i don't i don't think so and he's like i i gotta come check there's water seeping into the to the apartment below you i was i looked at my wife and i was like the doorman's coming up we have to put all this away first of all it, it's about 200 degrees right now this still oh. so it's burning hot so we get oven mitts from the you know and, and slide it into the closet and close the door and try to put the sink back together before before he got up there. He got up, looked around. He's like, oh, okay, there's no water up here. I was like, oh man, we need a better place to do this. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I speak with Jordan Milne, founder and CEO of Hardshore Distilling Company, a craft distillery based in Portland, Maine that recently won the title of Best Craft Gin in the U.S. by USA Today. While only two years into production, Jordan and I talk about the four-year lead-up to starting Hardshore, the difference between being a gin maker versus an alcohol professional, and the importance of authenticity in creating a differentiated brand. I came away impressed with the focus and vision Jordan has for his company, and appreciative of his candor, discussing both the good and the bad of Hardshore's journey thus far. All right, Jordan, welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast, the inaugural episode. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, quite the honor. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to start because it's a it's a story that I think is tailor-made for an article, a podcast, uh, a movie. It's the it's the guy in finance, ditches finance. And you you've traveled across every aspect of finance in New York. Uh, and then moved up to Maine, which most of my friends from New York assume that's Canada, and decide to become a distiller. Uh, so walk me through the beginning of hardshore distilling and how you went from high finance Wall Street to Washington Ave in Maine as a distiller. Yeah, it's a pretty well-trodden path, so it's nothing <laughs> nothing too novel. But no, I, um, I didn't study finance, so I kind of ended up in finance. Um, <laughs> kind of by by luck um, or fate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I had a friend. I, I, I was I was studying Middle Eastern history at Dartmouth, and in 2006, I want to say I was supposed to go to Lebanon um, to do some work for my thesis, um, but the Israelis invaded Southern Lebanon that year, so my visa was canceled, and all of a sudden I was sort of stuck. Out, yeah, stuck in the winter time. Um, and so, luckily, Dartmouth is on the uh, Dartmouth is on a uh, four 
cycle or a four quarter cycle. And so I called a friend who worked at Bridgewater Associates in Connecticut and said, Hey, you know, this internship thing is coming up. What's this all about? And he was like, Oh dude, you'll love it. It's great for people who are non-finance people. They don't care about the finance. They just, they'll teach you that piece. They just really want like good critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So I applied in a really super weird format. It was actually a group interview, um, which is good for me. Cause I think if it really got super technical, I would have been <laughs> out First thing. Yep. Um, but it was really just everyone brought a topic and we debated the topics. It was very, very easy for a non-finance person to kind of engage in that environment. So I got the internship um, for the winter of 2007. And it just turns out markets are amazingly fascinating to me. I think they're absolutely incredibly interesting. And um, and Bridgewater was a great place to really learn about um, economic linkages. And I, I got bit by the bug. So after school, rather than look into kind of like the intelligence path that we were, I, we, I was thinking about, um, I started looking at finance. So I got my first job in Stanford, Connecticut at SAC Capital. I was there for about two years. Um, I wanted to move into the city. You know, I was a 20 two-year-old guy or 24, I guess at that time, um, you know, you just want to kind of be where it's all happening. So I moved in the city, I changed jobs to, um, an event driven asset fund, uh, down on wall street, um, did that for a few years and ultimately really fell in love with deals. And so I went to the sell side as a M and a corporate advisor. Yeah. You've touched it all. All right. So, so then enter, enter Hardshore. Where, where did the kernel of the idea come from? I know you were a hobbyist distiller. Yeah. I don't know what that means because I didn't know you could be a hobbyist distiller. I thought you could be a hobbyist brew maker. So well, what, is, what, A, what does that even mean? But when did, when did Hardshore really start bubbling up for you, pun potentially intended? So, uh, and sort of when did the tinkering start? Yeah. So, um, when I was back at SAC, I was, uh, I got really into collecting whiskey. It was something that was uh, a hobby of mine. And it was a, it was a ton of fun and it really started getting me in, or I really started thinking, how can I participate in this further? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this collecting whiskey, seeing what other people are making uh, or have made in the past. It's really interesting, but maybe I want to like learn about how this stuff is actually made and try making it myself. So I found a, uh, still maker down in Tennessee, um, online. He made one for me. Uh, it's about as tall as I am little guy that I kind of hid in my kitchen. In as my... tall as you are. And that's a little guy. That's a very little guy. You're what? Six feet. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm six, six feet. feet. It's about seven feet tall, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's narrow. And I mean, it's a great still it's made by the guys at uh, hillbilly stills and they are amazing, amazing still makers, but they're making, you know, small hobbyist stills. And when you say hobbyist, this is a... Yes, I was right. That's not hobbyist to me. Hobbyist was like, it's a paint bucket size. Yeah. So it was, it was a fairly, it was a fairly, uh, serious attempt at hobby. Yeah. How about that? Um, but, uh, but you're right. Uh, from a, from a standpoint of, there aren't a lot of guys doing home distillation, um, mainly because it's not a legal practice. Every distiller out there, not, not every, but 95 out of 100 have a uh, woodshed, kitchen closet, cellar story. Yeah. That's where they learned. And because well, I was going to ask, did Discovery Channel want to sort of do an op-ed piece <laughs> on you for uh, for moonshiners? They have they have their uh, they've got their talent. They have their stars. You don't have the accent for that. No, I, I don't. I don't have <laughs> I don't have the accent for it. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's very much like that. I remember one time almost kind of getting caught. I was in my apartment on on Park Ave and Thirty Fifth uh, doing a batch. Where of, all the good moonshiners. You, are no, located. it's it's a it's a it's basically yeah, an it's incubator. Hot, oh yeah, yeah. hot bed for moonshiners. And I was. 
you know, when you distill, you need cooling water running through your, running through the system and, uh, you end up using a lot of water. Um, well I flooded the basement, the, the apartment below me. Um, uh, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what happened necessarily, but, but the water pipes leaked. And so I get a call from my doorman. He's like, Hey, is your dishwasher leaking? I was like, I don't, I don't think so. And he's like, I, I gotta come check. There's water seeping into the, to the apartment below you. I was, I looked at my wife and I was like, the doorman's coming up. We have to put all this away. First of all, it, it's about 200 degrees right now, this still. So it's burning hot. So we get oven mitts from the, you know, and, and slide it into the closet and close the door and try to put the sink back together before before he got up there. He got up, looked around. He's like, oh, okay, there's no water up here. I was like, oh man, we need a better place to do this. <laughs> so, no kidding. So we, 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 we got by, um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was just a hobby. It was actually, when I was at TAP, it was a really good hobby because sometimes, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of things, uh, you get home at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and you can't sleep. You just left a battlefield and your mind is going a mile a minute. So you need something to kind of transition from you know, from work to, to sleep and distilling was perfect for me. It was, uh, I'd get home and spend a couple hours, you know, doing a mash or, or, or setting up the still for the next day. And it was, it was re- a really great midnight hobby. Um, so what do, what do hobbyist distillers distill? Whatever you like, actually. Um, so you don't, you don't necessarily need a lot of time to, to distill whiskey or bourbon. You can go Fresh, no. fresh whiskey, fresh bourbon. Yeah, absolutely. So you're about and to see how little I know about actually no, no, about it's, distilling it's 100% alcohol. 100% right. So there was a brew shop down in Brooklyn, close to like Red Hook. I would put on a big camping backpack. I would take the subway to Brooklyn. I would load up this camping backpack with like 60 pounds of of crushed grain and, and yeast, get back on the subway, back to my apartment and, you know, mash and, and distill. We were making like 100% corn whiskey at the time. And, uh, you, we put in little barrels and it was, you know, it, it was, it was in the corner and it was a conversation piece. People would come over for dinner and it was like, Oh, what's this? Be like, Oh, this is a, a little hobby I've started for myself. Um, we started visiting some of the craft distilleries in Brooklyn that had started up. Um, Tom Potter, who is very well known as the founder, one of the founders of uh, Brooklyn Brewery, mm-hmm. um, started a distillery just down the street. And I found his number in an old New York Economic Development Corps application that's public public information. Um, and his phone number was on that application. I was like, this was too easy. It's, it's like six years old. It can't <laughs> possibly be his number. So I called it and he, I got his voicemail. And I was like, this is Tom Potter. And I was like, oh. My gosh. So I, I left a voicemail and thought, you know, he'll never call. Sure. Um, two days later, I was interviewing a candidate at, at TAP Advisors and, um, he, and, and I was, I saw the number and I was just like, oh, I don't know. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's Tom Potter. And I told the candidate, I was like, I'm really sorry. This is completely unprofessional. I need to take this call. I will give you a good review. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, so I, so I took the call and two days later I was walking around with him in his distillery. He showed, he'd spent three hours walking me around telling me all about what he was doing. Um, I told him obviously that what was, kind of it, voicemail did you leave? I don't know. I, I think he's, it's, this is a thing about the distilling and brewing industry that is really evident to me in Maine, but even in a market like New York, which is hyper competitive, sure. people reach down and help up and help startups get going. People really care. And I remember asking him, we were sitting in, he has a little bar off the side of his distillery. And I said, Hey man, you've got to be crazy busy. Why would you spend three hours with a kid who is trying to start a distillery and you know, eventually become one of your competitors? Why would you spend all this time? Why wouldn't you just like answer my, answer my questions via email and say, you know, that's enough. 
It's like, well, if people hadn't done this for Steve and I, when we were trying to start the brewery, you would never have had a Brooklyn brewery beer. So call it paying it forward. And I remember thinking that is the coolest answer I think you possibly could have given me. And I've really taken that to heart. You know, I've really, I really, um, it really is important to me now because at the time that Tom and so many other Toms, I mean, that was the first stop on the trail, but there were 18 more where people were overly generous with their time, their counsel, their advice. And I try to be as helpful to others that are trying to get started up as well to try to avoid the pitfalls that I fell into, despite all the good advice that I've been given by by, uh, the guys who've come before me. So the brewing and the distilling industry are both rife with cooperation and helpfulness. It's, it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible somewhat confusing trend, but it's very well ingrained. It's one of the most, it's one of the biggest advantages that Maine offers to beverage manufacturers. Um, so you think Maine's even a, a head, head and shoulders above. I have not had, I have not had one experience with a brewer or a distiller or a mead maker or a winemaker or a kombucha maker that hasn't been absolutely incredible. It's incredible. So we're in a Right, right where we sit right now in a two block radius, you have eight to 10 brewer, craft brewer and distilling companies. Yeah. Crazy. It's insane. Crazy. It's absolutely crazy. This is. And you're saying they're all helpful. All of them. No one's competitive with each other. You sit smack dab next to Maine Meadworks and Oxbow. Here's what we know. Um, There is more room in this industry for guys like us. We are fighting large incumbents with very large marketing budgets, with very ingrained sales, with, with huge sales forces, with very ingrained relationships with distributors and retailers. Um, this is not a fight with each other. This is a fight with large incumbent brands. And it, the, I mean, rising tide got the name right. You know, a rising tide lifts all ships. The way that the distillers kind of talk about this is like, look, no one's coming to Portland, Maine to visit a distillery. They'll come to visit 10. And so, I mean, there's a reason that, I mean, the, the bourbon trail in Kentucky, right? 95% mm-hmm. of the world's bourbon is made within 35 miles of each other. Um, it, it, this is, this is a cooperative, uh, helpful industry. And, and we, we all know who our targets are and it's not each other. So, uh, it's, it's super helpful. So Portland, Maine going to be the start of the, uh, the gin trail. We absolutely would love for Portland, Maine to be a, I mean, right now I think there's 17 distilleries in, in Maine. Um, it's crazy. No one knows this because, and, and, and I didn't know, and this is an earned research. And this this is not a, this is not a, a twist of the knife brewers. This is a, this is a tip of the cap, but it's because the brewing industry is the headline. I mean, it is, it is growing at a breakneck pace. There are so many breweries making incredible product that, I mean, Portland was recently named, I can't remember the name of the, the, the publication, um, but it was recently named the number one beer town in America. Um, was it really Portland, Maine? Yeah. Wow. And so this is, this is a really good place. This is a really good place to run a beverage manufacturing company. Um, interesting. It, I'm, so I'm going to, I want to unpack that a little bit because let's I, do it. we've talked off air uh, about the regulation in the state and it being a little bit counterproductive. Fair. So uh, we're going to end up not going chronologically here, but we're going to skip ahead to what's it like to operate in the, in the alcohol space sure. in Maine specifically and what that means. You own a, a distillery, but you also have a tasting room and, and then you distribute. Uh, and, and those are all characterized by different types of regulation. So 
sort of help help everyone listening understand what it means to distill, distribute, but also sell in your tasting room alcohol. Sure. The federal government is very intent on making sure that taxes, the excise tax, the federal excise tax gets paid on those products. So we have to report every month, every drop that we have brewed and distilled. Um, and we owe taxes on that. Um, and then we bottle our spirits. And when we pull it out of our warehouse, that's when we pay the federal excise tax. And there are two systems in the United States currently. 18 states are called control states, where the state has, is the, has a monopoly on the distribution, and in some states, even the retail, of s- distilled spirits. In other states, it's an open state, which is more like your regular system where we have a distributor, they have a license as well, they buy from us, they distribute to retailers, it's the three-tiered open system. Um, and that's in 32 states. So Maine is one of the 18, it's a control state. The only distributor of distilled spirits in the state of Maine is the state of Maine. Yep. Um, and it's a good monopoly. If it's, you can get it. it's a really good monopoly. It's a great monopoly. So every time I take a bottle from the back of my distillery and bring it to the front of my distillery where the tasting room is, the state gets a 30% cut of the retail price of that bottle. Um, that's tough to deal with. That's really hard to get under. It's very tough. So in the state of Maine's mind, we have two businesses. We have a distillery, which is a manufacturer, and we have a tasting room, which is a retailer. Mm-hmm. So the state is the wholesaler. So we, the manufacturer, sell it to the state. The state then sells it to the retailer, and the retailer, us also, sells it to the consumer. That's that's how they kind of view their role. Yep. Um, it's really it's it's really onerous um, to deal with. Now there are some good things that we do. Um, for instance. Um, our tasting rooms can serve cocktails. We can take a bottle of gin and split it up 12 different ways and pour it with other non-spirituous, you know, uh, tonic, for example, and, and sell cocktails out of our distillery. They're delicious. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not me. That's my, that's my team. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of, there are many States where that is not a legal practice. You can't have a, you can't, um, you can serve samples like half ounce straight samples of your product at a tasting room, but you can't mix up cocktails. So that's a really, that's a big advantage. Um, the, the market itself in Maine is incredibly focused on Maine made products. So, um, when I say it's a really great place to run a distillery, it's not necessarily the regulatory regime or the government of the state of Maine that is making it a super great place to run a distillery. It's really the people, it's the people of <laughs> and Maine the culture and the environment. Sure. The, the environment's fantastic. Um, we take our water from the taps of Portland, Maine, uh, that flows from Lake Sebago or Sebago Lake. Uh, and we almost do nothing to it. Nothing. It is absolutely perfect for a brewer or a distiller to use this water for our purposes. It's super low in organic in organics, very low in iron, very low in chlorine. Um, just that the makeup of the water is almost ideal. Interesting. Yeah. I did not know it's that. A huge, Obviously, I knew the main water was good. Didn't know that it was. It's, it's more than good. Paradise it's, for it's, brewers and it's, distillers. It's incredible. So I guess I'm, I'm going to expand on that. Uh, Portland, pun- I think it punches above its, its weight class. Uh, you know, the reason why I really wanted to start the podcast with local businesses is exactly that quip I said in the beginning of the show uh, that, you know, friends from New York thought I was moving to Canada, basically, when I said I was moving to Maine. Uh, I think people are turning on to the fact that it's only two hours from Boston yeah. uh, and, it, and Maine does get, you know, 38 million tourists a year. So it's obviously not totally secret. Uh, but the whole state million people pretty small for the Northeast. Uh, 
So other than the water, which can't be the entire answer, why is it that Portland of all places has become this mecca hub for craft alcohol? Man, that's a really, really good question. So there's a, there's a historical answer to that, which is that we had incredible visionaries that came many decades before us and built their breweries. And I'm thinking uh, specifically of Rob Todd of Allagash, yep. Fred Forsley of Shipyard. These guys are really great brewers and really good brewery managers. Um, and they have built incredible businesses and incredible products. Um, and they've created an environment here that is kind of like, come one, come all. Come and do this here. It's a really good business model. The, 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 the market is primed to look for new brands, for new things. It's, it, very few people are like, oh, now my brand is this beer and that's what I drink and that's all. It's, it, it, people are constantly looking for, for new flavors, new beers, new styles. Um, and so the, those guys that started this, I mean, craft brewing back in the 80s, it was crazy. It was such a weird thing to do because you had these dominant four American breweries making one type of beer. And that was how it, that, that was it. That was the market. And these guys came along and they're like, we're going to brew beer. And they're like, you're going to compete with Anheuser-Busch, Miller. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you're crazy. Um, and they were crazy. And they're crazy successful. Yep. And so these were the guys that were saying, this can be done. And they've created an environment here where it's, an easy, it's, it's, a, it's much easier to say, I'm going to do it too. This is a market that is primed um, to bet on the little guy. And it's, it's, it's really come through. And so the, the, the community reaction from us, we're not Mainers, you know, we're from New York. Um, but the, yeah, you're from, you're from away. That's right. I'm from away, but the community rally behind us, you know, strangers really betting on us and, and putting us on their cocktail menus when, you know, bar managers and bartenders at stores and just really getting into the story and, and proud that we would come and do this here. That is why it's a good place to do this in Maine. That is why we're super successful. It's not the it's not the uh, the regulatory regime. It's not easy access to capital. It's not you know we're a, a, a centralized shipping hub because <laughs> we are not that. It's uh, it's the people of Maine that really l let us believe that we are home, even though we're very very recent transport plants from sure. a, from a new place. That's really what makes it. So I think a lot of people at this point in the podcast are listening and like, I'm ready to go brew and distill. Jordan, you should. Jordan just told me it's easy, rising tide, lifting all boats. It's all great. So I'm actually going to come back to that. We're going to talk about how it's not easy because it is capital intensive, incredibly long data. There are a couple about. obstacles. But I want to, before I get to that, uh, I want to talk about the community aspects. I think you have this great story about when your still was delivered. Yeah. Uh, and I'd love you, I'd love for you to share that in the podcast. I think it's a good anecdote to describe the community in Maine and how it helps out. No, yeah. Uh, I'm really glad that you brought this up because this kind of encapsulates everything that we've been talking about, about this just cooperative you know, nature. Uh, so yeah, there was a, a tenant in our space. We were, we were cutting him in half essentially and taking half the space. Um, and uh, he was just kind of taking a sweet time getting out of there. And so uh, the still was set to arrive on a certain date. We, we said, hey, we're going to need this spot. Um, but it wasn't ready. And as, as many shipping managers are, uh, can, can tell you, you don't always get a heads up. And so we get a <laughs> phone call one December day. Uh, hey, delivery for hardshore. 
am I in the right spot? Cause there's no sign on the door. There's nothing. Yep. And it's, it's just a snowy cold day outside. So I oh, lose in winter. Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. It was in that's December. Even, that's even better. So I, what are we talking? Is it below freezing outside? Oh, it's freezing cold outside, <laughs> like brutal, brutal cold outside. So I sprint <sighs> down from Wyndham, uh, from my home. It's about a 30 minute drive. Get there. The driver's there kind of angry that he had to wait around for 30 minutes. I have no solution here. This is, I, it's basically an entire 48 foot container. It's huge. And I, I just told him like, listen, I got nothing. I, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no way of unloading this. I have nowhere to put this. I don't know what to do. And so there's a little bit of commotion going on and, and, and some guys from the Meadworks and from Oxbow come out and they're just like, what's up? And I'm like, I kind of, you know, tell them my story. I'm a little, you know, obviously I'm flustered, um, kind of not being super neighborly, kind of being a jerk just because I'm, I'm so afraid of what, what's going to happen. Oh, yeah, I'm just like, what is going on? And so they were just like, well, I guess there, there, it, was a, it was three giant crates the size of a small car each and a big tank on its side. The tank is also about the size of a, a pickup truck. And they basically said, well, why don't you put two of them in our brewery? And the, and the mead work said, we'll, we'll take two also. And I, I go and I was like, you have room? And they were like, no, we definitely <laughs> don't have room. But what are your options at this point? I was like, none. It's like, great, I'll go get, the for, I'll go get our forklift let's get this truck unloaded. I was like, by the way, my name's Tim. <laughs> I'm like, I'm Jordan. I was like, great, let's do this. Wow. And it was just like, what are Middle you, of winter. What are you talking about? You're gonna, and it wasn't zero cost. It wasn't like, oh, I have this empty warehouse. You can put it in there. Maybe we can talk about some rent, whatever. It was just one guy trying to run a brewery in the dead of winter, looking at a stranger who is totally screwed and saying, it's my responsibility to fix this. And he did it and never asked any questions, just, just went through it. It was awesome. It was the most incredible experience. And the mead works too, same story. The other guy, they never even hesitated. So we got it loaded in. We were in their spaces for a month. Oof. It was a month of, I mean, and it wasn't in the corner. It was in the middle of their space. Like they had to go around it every day. I remember getting texts from Tim be like, hey man, what's the, uh, what's the deal? Can I, when do I get my brewery back? I was like, I am so sorry. It should be any time. Meanwhile, I'm yelling at this former tenant in this space. Be like, man, I will help you move. I will put it anywhere you need. I got to get my space. I got to bring these crates in. So yeah, it was about a month of jamming these guys up. And uh, that's how I met Tim Adams of Oxbow and Ben Alexander of Maine Meadworks. And I'm assuming friends to, friends to this day. Awesome. Awesome friends. So that's a good segue into the not easy part. Sure. By the time we were you know, a year into putting the plan together, it was looking pretty good. And so we said, Hey, is this going to happen? If we're going to, if this is going to happen, we need to do something drastic that is sort of like pull the ripcord and have no, no way to look back. Yep. So we you have to make the climb without the rope. That's right. So we bought the still. <laughs> that'll, that'll get you hooked. That'll get and, you hooked. Cause we knew that it was going to be a long runway. These man, mm-hmm. the, the manufacturing backlogs for these guys. Cause there's only a handful of guys around the world that really do this type of work. Um, just you know, put, put, just to put magnitude to it. What, how, how much of a capital investment is a still like, um, time and talking about capital LA? Uh, about of a quarter of a million dollars. So, so nothing, not, not small, not, not small. small at all. Small. Um, and so we said, we, we found the right, we found the right manufacturer for us. Um, we, you know, kind of spec'd it out and told them what we wanted to do. And we worked with them to design the still for us. And, um, they told us, okay, it's going to be 
18 months for delivery. Like, that's crazy, but okay, 18 months. Um, it turned out to be a little bit less than that, um, but, uh, but that's, so we had 18 months to basically get that tenant in that building that we had never been to in that town that we don't live in out so that I don't have to blow up Tim and Ben's spot. Um, so the, 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 the clock was on. So the still started first. Yeah, the still started first. And that's what gave you sort of the D-Day to then work towards. Okay, that's right. It's, it's got to be ready to go by yeah. then. So, uh, so the next thing that we needed to do was we had to raise capital. Yep. Um, and so we put the, you know, the plan was more or less together. We don't really jump into things without kind of knowing what the, what the strategy is going to look like. We knew how much we needed. Um, and we started marketing this thing to Friends and family plus, I would say, it would be the raise. We weren't raising a lot of money. Um, we ra- we ended up raising uh, half a million dollars, um, which is a lot of money, but it's but it's not daunting for a first time capital raise. And we mm-hmm. really just wanted to get the get the the stiller the distillery up on its legs, um, begin to make a build a brand, uh, develop some products, and see if this is something that is worth a second round and. That's essentially what we told our investors. Look, this is proof of concept money. And it was great. The the fun the fundraising process, I know, can be an arduous slog. For us, it was a really, really great experience. We learned uh we it was very humbling. Said no one ever. Yeah, no, it was it was we, so we learned a lot of things that we hadn't thought of. And then you're up and running. Uh so take me through the early years of now you got a you got a big time, you got a big boy still, you got a tasting room, you're in a spot, uh the the environment is is good and and growing but you're still yeah so, essentially a, a startup so after about six or seven months well behind schedule we finally got the distillery up and running um we started we had a recipe that was written for a 13 gallon still we needed to scale that up to a 300 gallon still not one for one by the way <laughs> very very different equipment we had some post um you know uh still translation tinkering that we needed to do, um, on the recipe. And then we finally launched in October of 2016. We, uh, we had the tasting room ready. I hired a a guy who played on a softball team with me, who's a local architect. He had never been a bartender before. He, he tended our bar the first night. It didn't go great. (laughs) I was back there. My wife was back there. It was, it was, you know, it was crazy. It was pandemonium, but it was really, really fun. Um, people really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, we were off to the races. So, uh, the first thing that happens when you open a distillery in a place like Maine is you find out that the tasting room is amazing as a cash producer because your margins are incredible. Yep. I've heard that from every single tasting room oh, operator. Yeah, your margins are incredible. Um, it's it, it's it's something that can that's very tangible. You just open up the door during a time when people want to get a cold drink, and they come and they get a cold drink. And you know, it's it seems like oh, this is the the business. The problem with that is you only have so many tabletops. You only yep. have so much space. Hard it's scale. not a scalable, scalable business. Yep. And, uh, and the way that I look at it now from this side is I love my tasting room. But if you told me today that I had to give up the distribution channel or give up the tasting room, I'm putting fermenters in that tasting room and closing my doors to the public. I, okay. I, the distribution channel is where the business is. Um, the long-term business. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. I have to imagine that the tasting room is incredible for brand building and Un- creating Un- brand evangelism. Yeah, so uh, uh, the, the you're, you hit the nail on the head. The 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 tasting room to me is a self funding touch point 
feedback touch point with our customers. We get to tell them what we do. They get to tell them, they, we, they get to tell us what they like or what they don't like. Um, and we get to incorporate that in, into our process. We also get to learn, um, yeah, what, what consumers are looking for. What are the conversations that are happening, um, over the bar between bartenders and consumers away from hardcore in, in different areas. So we get to learn a lot about consumer behavior around gin and their perceptions of gin through our tasting room. It's great. Um, so it's, it's incredibly invaluable in that case and it does generate, it does generate cash. So it's, it's, it's really useful, but it's, uh, it's long-term piece of the puzzle is more on the marketing and, uh, like kind of category evangelism yeah. uh, side as opposed to um the long yeah the the long-term like revenue re revenue generator the next thing you have to do is get into the distribution channel you got to work with the the state um they have to approve the product um we had spent a lot of time on the product so we went and made our pitch super nerve-wracking day <laughs> uh because we basically don't have a business if they tell yeah, us yeah no. a lot hanging in the balance um but they didn't tell us no uh so we got into the distribution channel and nothing happened because they don't really tell you that after the the wholesaler in the state says yes, you have to get people to buy it. You have to get people to put it on their shelves. Oh, right. It's in a warehouse. <laughs> no consumers are walking through the warehouse to buy it. So that's when I discovered that make, building a gin distillery is not just about making a really amazing gin. It's learning how to be a, a sales. It's learning how to sell alcohol, how to, how to, you know, kind of move the product, how, what, bartenders, what they're looking for, beverage managers, what they're looking for. There was this whole other side of the curtain that I had never been on. I had never worked behind a bar before. Um, I've worked in restaurants as servers, but you don't really understand the P and L of a bar. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was the next step that we hadn't really considered. You know, we sort of had this really naive plan our distributors are the sales team. They're the ones that have the sales guys that go out and they say, Oh, have you had hard shore? It's really great. You should try it in your next, in, you know, next spring's cocktail menu. No, they're not doing that for us. They're doing that for the brands that keep their lights on. They're doing yep. it for Hendrix and Bombay. That's who they're doing it for. Yep. For us, it's, we need to get into our car, drive to the bar, drive to the liquor store and tell our story. So that's what I was going to ask. It's, it's a brute force. Oh yeah. It's brute it's force. It is, it is, Souls on pavement. That's what so it is. So now Mark Cuban is smiling. He also doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> but uh, if you were pitching Shark Tank, he'd be like, all, all for it. Oh, uh, yeah. 100%. That's the best way. That's what you got to do. Brute force, you, grit, grind. You put a bottle of gin that says, uh, not for sale, not for resale, sample, um, in your briefcase, and you go and hit every liquor store. It, Maine, in Maine, they're called agency liquor stores. Um, every bar, every restaurant that you can. And you put yourself up on those bar stools and you tell your story and you tell it again and you tell it again. And when they tell you, no, you say no problem. And you come back next week and you tell your story. And that is how you do it. This is a relationship business. This is so much because listen, at the end of the day, I think we make a really fantastic gin. I think it's awesome. But you know who else makes a fantastic gin? Almost everybody. Out there. <laughs> I mean, the incumbents didn't become that way because they make horrible products. They make sure. really fantastic gin. And so we need to have something else to, to offer people. And what we offer people is our authenticity, our story, and their connection to what we're doing here in Portland. And, and that was where we started. Was there, a, was there an aha moment there? Because where I'm going with this is, you know, you, you're, you're very nice to your competitors that they all make great gins, but only one gin was nominated best craft gin in the U.S., and that's Hardshore. So, 
you got to pat yourself on the back there. Uh, and that's got to come from somewhere, right? And it's not, it's not one or two bars saying this is the best gin that I can make a cocktail with. There are a couple of aha moments or, or stories that really come to mind. I remember we were, were I'm not going to use names. I don't want to put anyone on the spot here. But <laughs> That's uh, fine. I'm, we work with a, a local liquor store that is far smaller um, than some of, the, some of the large chains here in Maine. And I remember looking at the numbers that they were selling of Hardshore versus, you know, some of the chains that have, you know, 20 stores. And their one store was outpacing, you know, like the top 10 stores of the other guys. And so I went in, I was like, guys, you're our third largest account. What, what's going on here? How, what, what, why are you selling so much hardware? And they're like, we love this. <laughs> this is the best gin. And that aha moment was this industry is not about banners on the wall. It's not about, you know, uh, incentives for your distributor sales team. It's not, I mean, those things are important, important piece of the puzzle, but it's people. You have to get people to be advocates for you. Um, and these guys had found something in Hardshore that resonated with them. And when people came into their store, they were telling people, do you want to try the best gin that you'll ever try here? It's in this bottle. And they were moving product at like a 10 X clip of these guys that are sort of like the biggest, the biggest guys, you know, or retailers in the state of Maine. So that was a moment where I, I, I learned it's not about numbers. It's about people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has served us really, really well. Uh, it's not about being, I mean, there's 500 agency liquor stores in Maine. We don't need to be in all 500, but we need to be very close with our top 50 stores. And though that's how you move the needle here. Um, and so that was, that was a big aha moment. Another aha moment was there was this very, very popular and fantastic restaurant in, in town. Uh, not going to mention which it is. <laughs> And, you know, we would go by and tell the story kind of the same way that we told all the other stories. And we just, it really seemed that we were on brand and we were aligned and, you know, we liked them and had good rapport and it just, it wasn't happening. It just wasn't coming around. Um, and, and, you know, we were like, Hey, you know, this summer's coming up. Can we get on a cocktail menu? The fall's coming up. Can we get on a cocktail menu? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. And just, it never really worked out. And it wasn't really until we brought, we finally said, look, what is going on here? Let's bring the team to the distillery and really talk to them and, uh, and, and show them what we do and, and get their hands in a big sack of wheat and, and, and see what the mash smells and tastes like and see the still going and then make cocktails and talk about what we do. And, that's, and when we got them up there to kind of see it, it was a week later, she returned my email and said, let's talk about hardshore cocktails here. And it, it, now they're invested in the ab brand, Absolutely. Right? That's the value of, of the tasting room. That's the value of showing people like, look, this is not something that's made in a factory, um, you know, by, by laboratory, you know, this is real. This is people using their hands to create something that, you know, in a, in a very small way, in a very meticulous way, in a very high quality way. And people, and, and they got right on board with it. And so that was another aha moment was like, we need to tell this story to a larger audience. We can't bring the entire world to our t tasting room. So we need to really be transparent and show people and really make our brand about making things small um, and, and well. Um, and so that's what Hardshore has really been about ever since, really ever since we started, but we're now we're being more, promotion we're promoting that that sure. ethos a little so bit so how how are you how are you accomplishing that obviously the the success with the USA today nomination or the 
the, the crowning of you guys as the best craft gin, that's, that's amazing publicity. But how are you scaling up, telling that story in an authentic way that's not bringing everyone into the tasting room? Because obviously that's not scalable. Yeah. So it's really, it's really talking to people and, and, uh, telling them about our process, about how we do things. We talk about how we hand chop all of our fresh mint and fresh rosemary that goes into the, that goes into it. We talk about the fact that our family grows this grain and we are very, very exacting on the, the standards, uh, for the grain that comes to the distillery. Um, we talk about how, how we, um, distill, how we taste, how we do quality control. We really talk about our process because that's what they want to talk about. It's, it's very easy to take a bottle of gin and pour it and say, there's, there's your drink. Um, but it, it doesn't excite anyone. People want to hear the story behind the products on the shelf. Otherwise they're just, you know, it's just ornamentation. Um, and so we, st we got away from that, you know, best craft gin distillery in America. We love being named the best craft gin distillery in America, but we really want to focus on telling people about how we make this gin, not what this gin is, but how we make this gin. And when people can visualize that and they can see how much we care about what we do, it's infectious. They tend to care about what we do. Yep. And then they buy a bottle and then they, they, you know, you should see this gin. I met the, I met the distiller. He, he went on and on and on. He knows, I mean, there's so it's education. It's yep. all about telling your story and what you do on a daily basis. People want to tap into that. Um, so all of our sales guys, which I mean, we are, I'm my sales guy. <laughs> I've got my assistant distiller. All of the people that stand in front of other people to tell them about Hardshore have been involved in the production process for that very reason. Mm -hmm. You cannot sell someone uh, or you cannot, you cannot get someone to connect with your small brand in, in a really powerful way, the way that we're looking for it. If you are, if it's rote memorization, if you're just repeating a script that I've written for you, uh, I need you to get your hands dirty. I need you to smell what a tank smells like when it hasn't been cleaned properly. And so that, so I need you to know all these kind of these funny, quirky parts about this, uh, about the process, because even though you're never going to be asked pride starts to come through in their voice when they're telling yep. the story. And that is infectious. But I think it does. It might never come out on a routine basis, but it will come out in bits and drabs. And it's that, you know, when I hear you speak, I just can't help but think about, you know, the, the word authenticity. It's something that, that we talk about a lot about when you're talking about separating your brand from others. You know, you go down to Whole Foods, I see a ton of gins now the the, the world is exploding. So how do you differentiate yourself? And it's that authenticity piece of, you know, the, the grains come from your family farm, hand chopping, those kinds of things are, are true and unique to you. And it's, it's simple to say on a podcast, but it's not easy to do. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's that simple, but not easy, which is great because I related to sort of my world talking to, to searchers who want to, I want to do what Chenmark does, buy, buy small businesses, invest in them, own them indefinitely. I want to, I want to copy the Chenmark playbook. Great. You know, you got to find an authenticity that's going to resonate with owners. So they want to sell to you because they can sell to a lot of other people. And I can tell you that on the phone and not worry that you're going to copy what Chenmark does because we have our own authenticity. Hardshore has its own authenticity that no matter what, no one's going to be able to copy. I, I think that's a really, a really good point. I don't know if I've ever really thought about it in, in those terms, but it's, in, it's, it's true. It seems kind of like an, a tautology, but you can't fake authentic. You just have to do it. And that's the only way to make it, to get it done. And so that's why, 
I'm the one on the sales trail talking to bartenders and bar. Now that's not scalable forever. Nope. Um, but this, this idea that in but order- authenticity will lead to culture. Sure. And Absol- that culture is going to be critical Absolutely. to be able to scale, part to keep of, that authenticity. Part of our culture has definitely become, if you want to work at Hardshore, bring a pair of gloves. You are going to get in the back and you are going to get your hands dirty. That's going to be the quote of the podcast right there. <laughs> That's going to be on the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's um, that's how we do it. So, uh, when I when I created when I when I started with the idea of this podcast, it was to turn a spotlight on small businesses, and I wanted to focus on Maine to prove to people that great businesses, great stories, great entrepreneurs, great owners, great founders can come from a corner of the country where most people you know forget that we exist. You've had your setbacks, right? The the doorman almost almost catching you. Uh, the still not having a place to go in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are others and, and the successes, right. The, the best craft gin. Um, but as you look forward, uh, what do you see as the future for hard show? I know, and I just, in part, I'd like the answer to be touching on, uh, the bourbon you're working on. I want to combat, or I, I don't want to p- play in the making spirits just to make spirits. I want to make really, truly great spirits that matter. Um, and that's why when we said we're going to make a gin, we said there's it's not going to be a Juniper Forward London Dry because if we did that, we would be just another gin on the shelf. We wouldn't be adding to the conversation on the bar shelf. And so when Hardshore Bourbon is finally ready, it won't be good enough. It will be fantastic. Or it won't be. And we can easily put those barrels onto the secondary market and sell them to another distillery and they can put it out under their own label saying, you know, bottled by so-and-so in such and such a place. But Hardshore is only interested in putting out products that are truly, truly exceptional. Um, Whiskey is tough. I don't know if we're whiskey makers. I honestly don't, can't tell you if we're whiskey makers. I know that we make whiskey and we're putting it in barrels and we're, we're investing in that, in that future. Um, but there are so many unknown uh, variables that we can't really control and we're waiting to see how we can, how we can work with those variables. You know, the, the wood that we're using. I've never put whiskey into wood like that before. It's a brand new, it's a, it's a brand new, you know, brand new barrel maker that we're using because we've never used a barrel maker. Um, these incumbent whiskey makers, they have hundreds of years of institutional knowledge that we are just beginning to compile. Um, and so uh, the thing that I tell my guys all the time when we're, when we're doing these mash flights and we're finalizing and and tweaking and, and making the cuts on our, on our distillation, people are just like, man, how do you know? How do you know this is what it's what you want it to be? You're gonna put it in a barrel now, and and you can change it now. But once you put it in a barrel, it's done, and you're gonna set it on this voyage for like seven to ten years to be done. Making whiskey takes courage; it really does. Um, it's a big financial undertaking. It may not pan out, um, and that's why for the foreseeable future, with possibly some some side projects that we're that we're kind of tinkering around with, we're gin makers. And we are psyched to be gin makers. Um, it is my only product. Hardshore Original Gin is all that I do. Um, it's 100% of my company. And if that ended up being my fate, I'd be a very, very happy person. I love making gin. And I want to make this gin and and maybe a couple other gins in a similar vein um, for the rest of my life. So that's that's kind of how we've said it. We're this The gin is funding a potential experiment into a new product. Um, 
with new products to come from there, other types of alcohol, it still sounds like has the functionality. Yeah. You so know, is, is vodka, rum, are those, are those on the horizon, maybe on the horizon, or is it a wait and see? How much of it, I guess the, the better question, how much of the next five, maybe 10 years of Hardshore is sketched out at least roughly in your head? We, we have a map, um, but the only thing that's mapped out is our gin. Um, so right now we, with our bourbon, we're in a full let a thousand flowers bloom. When we have downtime on the still and we invested in operating capacity that we can grow into, um, because of the financial and, and complex, uh, issues with, you know, kind of adding capacity. We yeah. wanted to make that bet early on that we were going to grow. Uh, a lot of distillers kind of find themselves in a plateau situation where they don't bet for the, they don't plan for their own success. So they grow into, you Caps. know, yeah. And then, and then that's very difficult for the brand. Mm -hmm. Um, cause you have partners who are expecting you to grow. And if you can't fulfill those orders, it's going to be a challenging partnership. Um, so we have downtime on the still. And when we have downtime, we spend more time either developing new products or in this case, uh, adding to our inventory, uh, of whiskey. Um, we are beginning to tinker with some products. No, not vodka, not rum. Um, we're looking at Amaro. Amaro is a really interesting product. It's uh, Amari is Des a describe that for everyone. Yeah, Amari is a bitter digestif um, from Italy. A lot of a lot of small towns kind of have their own have their own flavor, and we fell in love with it um, on on one of our trips to to the Tuscan region. And I so I drink Amari at home. Uh, I drink Amaro at home, and my rule sort of when it comes to products is only do things that you want to drink. You know, if you don't drink vodka, maybe don't make vodka. Probably how, not going to make a good one. How are you going to make a good one? You're going to make another one. <laughs> it's going to be good enough, but it's not going to be great. And that's not what we're about. We're only, we're only interested in things about making things that we're going to care about like the last, last half percent. Um, gin I care about. I really want to make a gin that's going to go into the cocktail that I like to drink and make it perfect. I really love whiskey. Um, Amaro is something that I'm really, really interested in. Um, vodka. Listen, I think vodka can be a really interesting product category. I'm not interested in it. So I'm going to let, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. Rum. A lot of people have asked us about rum. You know, New England has a really, really proud, uh, deep rum distilling, uh, history. Um, it's not going to be for us. Um, there are some amazing rum makers here in Maine and some really incredible ones in Massachusetts also. Um, that's not going to be, that's just not one that we want to get involved in because I don't know the first thing about it. And I don't know what is not being done in the rum market today. And I'm not going to really, really be driven to figure it out. So that's not going to be somewhere we play. Cool. So I want to, uh, I want to close up the show asking a couple of questions that I plan to ask everyone. Uh, we'll see which ones stick and which ones don't. But uh, the first one is, what advice would you give yourself from five years ago? Oh man, um, what advice would I give myself from five years ago? I think, I think I would tell myself a great product is not the only thing that's going to get you there. Um, you need to learn how to connect with people and you need to get started um, kind of honing your message and honing your brand and figuring out what it is that your company stands for and learning how to tell people about that. Um, 
I was kind of, I was very naive, I think, in thinking what we'll do is we'll make the world's best gin and people will find it on their own and celebrate feel, feel me the as dreams, a, right? Yeah. You build people, it, they will people, come. People will celebrate it as sure. the achievement of the century. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, so, so I think that's, that's one piece of advice. Just uh, get out there and start it. Yeah. Uh, just, and, and, and think about what it's going to be like to be not just a gin maker, but an alcohol professional and start mm-hmm. building that network and start learning what your customers think about, what bartenders think about what they care about. Um, it was an embarrassingly long time before I ever saw the P and L of a bar an embarrassingly long time. That should have been one of the first things that we looked at. What do our, how, what margins are we, are, do our customers need in order to make that work for them? I just, that was a question that we just never asked ourselves because we sort of were so focused on being gin makers and not focused on being gin sellers. That's, that's a key piece. That's great. That's really good. Um, the next two questions are going to be more tactical about the business, uh, and, and why I want to focus on small businesses with the future still unwritten give you two sort of dream scenarios, but I think they're going to be harder answers than they seem. The first is uh, probably the scarcest resource of all time. <sighs> so I give you four months, you press the pause button on everything, and it's just you and Hardshore. You don't have people coming into the tasting room. You don't have the fires of the day, the setbacks of the day. What do you work? What do you spend four months on that has to be Hardshore related? All right. Is this what I want to do or is this like what's best for the company? I guess both. Now and now you open up the door. I'm going to say right. both. I would say I would spend 2 months out of that time just transferring, just building up the chops of my assistant distiller. I think that the people behind you are the ones that are really going to allow this business to gain scale and knowing that I can walk out of the door and maybe not come back. And this, this shop could be okay. I don't think that I have that confidence right now. He knows exactly what he needs to do in the areas that we have tasked him with. And he's, and he excels and he excels at learning new things. I don't have all the time that I have that I need to teach him those new things. I had the benefit of four years, mm-hmm. maybe five of tinkering with a small still to learn how distillation works and, and how fermentation works um, and, and how things can go wrong. Like the, the best thing that you can do as a distiller or a fermenter is to make mistakes and learn what mistakes look and taste like. Um, and, and he hasn't really had a lot of that experience that those, that time. So I think I would spend a lot of time with him trying to build him up, uh, as a, as a, a fermenter, a brewer and, and a distiller. So, yeah, I think I would take half the time to okay. do that. It's amazing how every business boils down to people business. <laughs> I talk to business owners uh, across North America, so U.S. and Canada, in every industry imaginable, and you ask them what's the most important part of their business, and I've I can count on one hand because it's exactly one person who said something other than people. <laughs> and what's really tough in the distilling industry is that you know home distilling is an illegal practice, so there are very there are few people out there willing to put their you know, reputational and financial well-being on the line to indulge in a hobby. Um, it's just not done that much. So while there's lots of home brewers, there's fairly few home distillers. And so the, when it comes time to hire talent, there's no market. 
there's no, your own. there's no market. So yeah, it's a home, it's a homespun, a homespun industry. So that's so, two months. You so got two, two months, more months. Um, I would spend, uh, another month of that time just going, and this would be a ton of fun, just going around to bars and restaurants in, in my markets and learning, learning what my customers do. You still get hangovers by the way. Yeah. I, 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 it's I, magical okay, world. Sorry. That's fine. I can, I can make can one hit. last for a while okay. and bring up a good conversation. <laughs> I don't get enough time. I don't get enough time in bar stools. Honestly, that is where you learn about, uh, the spirits industry and how this whole, how this whole game works. Um, bartenders know what's up. They know what, why things move. They know why people make the decisions they do. They, they see all shades of people, all stripes and, and, and recognize these patterns and they are incredible fonts of knowledge and I don't get enough time with them. And so I think that I would spend an entire month or maybe I'd, you know, spend two months of my afternoons, uh, <laughs> sitting on bar stools and just yep. asking people questions. Um, and, and having conversation with them. So I think that that would be a, a really valuable piece. All right. Uh, the you third piece, yeah, the third piece was I would, I would take my still home. I would put it in my garage and I would just tinker. I would come up with some new things that would probably be terrible and would never see a bottle, you know, and, and see a label. Uh, but yeah, I, we don't develop enough new products. Um, I love hardshore original gin. I am not going to sacrifice the quality of hardshore original gin for anything. That is my, my, some of the best work that I've ever done. And I'm, and I do it every day. Um, and so I'm not going to say, Hey, you know, this month we're just going to develop it tomorrow. That's not how it works. We have to continue developing this gin, continuing getting this business off the ground. And so if I had, um, if I had time where I could actually shut the door and just bury myself in the distillery with my tiny still and figure out you know, what goes well and what new things we can push into. That's where I would spend my time for sure. Moonshiners coming to Wyndham, Maine. A hundred percent. All right. And the last question, more financially oriented, the next scarce resource is, is money, capital. Uh, so I, I'm going to phrase this question to try and right size it for business size. But uh, if I gave you two years worth of, of profits, company profits, and you had to reinvest it back in the business, how would you do that? Um, it's a good question. Um, we're currently not profitable, so it's not a lot of money you're giving me. But I'll imagine, I'll so imagine, zero dollars. Okay, <laughs> I'll imagine. Uh, imagine a, a large a, sum of a, money, a sizable windfall. Let's say to be let's, let's double your initial capital, right? So you said you initially raised five hundred k. Yeah. Let's say blank check million dollars shows up on your doorstep. Only stipulation has to be invested in hardshore. Sure. How are you doing it? Um. So because we were financially limited when we started and that was des by design. Um, we did invest a lot in our production capacity. And so we have, we can, we can make far more gin than we can sell. So the very first checks that I would write would be to sales, salespeople. I need a sales team. I don't have yep. any full-time sales guys. Um, we would look to expand into markets close by. Um, we're currently distributed through three States, Maine, her, uh, New Hampshire and, uh, Massachusetts. So we would probably finish out new England and probably move into the mid Atlantics. Um, and we would, we would put boots on the ground. That's, that's a really important piece. So it would take a little time because again, if you want to work at hard got to bring your gloves. So we would bring, bring them gloves. here. We'd bring them here. They would help us and learn to make hard original gin. Um, and then we would, we would begin deploying them into those markets. And so that, that's, that's what I would do. Awesome. Well, Jordan, really appreciate the time on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy it. Hope you enjoyed it. 
uh, I look forward to enjoying some uh, some gin and tonics and some other gin drinks that I've never had before. Nice at Hartshore uh, on these. Now that it's finally summertime, it's it's breaking seventy degrees here in Maine. Really look forward to it. Look, really look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Palmer. This was awesome.